COVID-19 order to stay at home has given my wife Marty and I opportunity to do of various things like paint the house, put up the trim, uh, and even catch up on some of the Marvel Adventure Avenger series. I'm going to start again. Okay. The COVID-19 stay-at-home order has, uh, in a sense, given Marty and I so many opportunities to do some things. We could do some painting, uh, putting up trim, and even catching up with the Marvel Avengers series. Now, admittedly, we're several years behind <laughs> in catching up, uh, so we tried to, uh, to get them in order. But as it turned out, we could not get the uh, Infinity Wars until we had seen the end games. Now, I know that we did that backwards, and we were also like two years behind. Uh, and so when we watched the uh, end game, which was a year old, uh, it didn't all make sense, but it gave us an idea of what the good ending was. And then shortly thereafter, we did watch the, uh, the Infinity War, uh, which was t a year before that. And what we discovered was that it ended pretty bleak, hopeless. As a matter of fact, that was kind of the intent of the whole movie. Uh, as I researched it a little bit, I uh, read something from the president of Marvel uh, in Marvel Cinematic Universe, uh, Kevin uh, Feige. Uh, and he said it this way. He said, MCU movies tend to end on a happy note with the hero usually triumphing over the forces of evil, even if they had to lose something or someone important to them along the way. That's one reason Infinity War is such a special MCU entry as it led most fans to leave the theater in a state of shock and emotional exhaustion. You see, the whole point was to leave the fans hopeless. Now, Marty and I, we watched it, and we didn't have that kind of feeling because we, we knew the end of the story. We knew that even though Thanos was the potentate of that time and that he was able to snap his fingers and, and half the uh, uh, world population disappears, we knew they'd come back because we saw the end of the story. Well, that's similar to what you see in the book of Isaiah, chapter 40. Uh, Isaiah shared with uh, Hezekiah that uh, his kingdom would be uh, taken into captivity to Babylon. Uh, he was told that was going to be a future item, and sadly, Hezekiah's attitude was, well, that's good, as long as it wasn't in my time. What a sad commentary, and I trust that those of us who are, who are struggling and working through this time of our lives, that we may not have that kind of attitude for our future, for our future generations, but that we should be conscientious and concerned that our investment has a positive impact and not just worry about, well, I've done my time, I'm, you know, I'm on my way out, and let them deal with it. But Isaiah wanted to make sure that even though the uh, forces of Babylon were to come in, that Israel knew the end of the story. That after the time of captivity, God was going to continue to show himself great. And so as we look at this concept out of Isaiah 40, 
I'm going to be taking and segmenting it a little bit to fit some areas that I saw so prominent in it. Now, I encourage you to to sit and read through all of the chapter of Isaiah 40 and to get the full feel of what uh, God is saying through his prophet. I also encourage you maybe to consider uh, listening to it in a dramatic fashion. Uh, There is a resource, it's called Blue Letter Bible, and they have a function on there where you can actually just hit a button and it will play for you a very dramatic and deep-sounding voiced uh, narration of Isaiah 40. And uh, you can do that in a, a few different versions. And I would recommend maybe the NLT just because it uh, uh, flows really well and it's pretty exciting as how, how big God is displayed in, in that time. But I want to uh, look at Isaiah 40 from the perspective of the questions that are formed in that chapter. Uh, As you dissect them out, there's there's 22 different questions that God asks as he presents himself in Isaiah chapter 40. And they highlight his greatness. So as we consider comfort in this time of crisis... Last week, we looked at how that we are to be comforted in the living and the lasting Word of God. I suggest that we should be comforted in the greatness of the God that we have. Let's have prayer and then look into Isaiah 40 at these questions that God is asking. Father, I thank you for the fact that you love us. You love us. You don't want us to be hopeless. You inform us. You give us your word to let us know not only what happened to Israel and what would happen to Israel, but also to what will happen to us, your church. And you've given us prophecy that we can know and give us hope and we can know the end of the story. And so God, as we look at your greatness, may we look at our time now and see it as a time in retrospect to your greatness that we may not be intimidated by that which we see, that we may not be intimidated by that which we do not know. For you see and you know, and uh, you are greater than all the forces that we fear and that we are concerned about. So I pray that you will uh, bless our time together as we look at this powerful passage of Scripture and that you indeed will be exalted and that we will uh, see you as the great God that you are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First category of questions is, who compares to God? As I think about what God is saying or asking in this chapter, he basically says this in verse 25, To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. So the chapter really does entail a lot of that questioning. Uh, The questions that God brings out, are designed to get our attention in regard to who is God and who is like him. One thing that I noticed as I read through this passage was the portion that always impressed me with how big God is. It says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? Seriously, there's several questions wrapped up in that one question. But as, you, as I looked at that, I realized 
least from my perspective, that it wasn't just talking about how great God is and how large God is to be able to measure the, the great universe. I think it's uh, emphasizing the fact that God is the standard of measurement. Uh, we have standards in our society to give us an idea of how wide this room is or how deep it is, how big this podium might be, or even how tall we might be. But God talks about uh, how that he is, in a sense, the standard. He is the one who not only has the capacity of being big enough to measure everything, it's by his standard it is measured. And he uses himself as the measuring stick, his own, his own self to determine the size. And I think that that emphasizes that he is indeed the standard. He is the standard to be able to be to measure all the universe, and he is the standard to be able to measure us as individuals. I thought about that measuring with the, the hand, and uh, we tend to measure horses by hand. I don't, but those that, that do. And uh, I was just curious, how many hands high would I be if I were measured like a horse? And at 17, 17 hands. But it's a standard established by us that... Uh, that, that is our size, and we have a tendency, we have a tendency to measure not only horses or other things around us by the standards that we have developed, but we tend to measure ourselves and what we are by those similar standards. Uh, we might um, measure our life experiences by our standards, and uh, we evaluate them accordingly to what we think that our life experiences are actually meaning. We might be tempted to measure success by our own standards rather than considering what God's standards are for success. Even risk, we measure risk based upon some of our priorities instead of God's measuring priorities. And quite frankly, we even measure comfort by our own standards rather than considering God's standard. God measured out all of the universe. He's not only big, he's the standard by which all measuring takes place. He goes on to say this as he, he works through this, uh, this passage. He says, who has measured the spirit of the Lord? In other words, who has been the measurer of God? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? God is asking the question, who is it that is God's counselor? He's not only the standard to be able to measure things. He is just to be able to interpret it all and to come to a conclusion and to act upon it. And he doesn't have to ask anyone for permission or counsel in regard to what he does or what he thinks or who he is. He alone is independent of all those things. So he not only has the right to measure because he's standard, he has the right to conclude what those measurements mean because he is the almighty God. He goes on to ask this question, who, who is my equal? He says, to whom then will you liken God or what likeness compare with him? You probably heard the phrase a doppelganger. 
where you say, oh, oh, you look just like so-and-so. Uh, and, uh, and then when you get them side by side, you say, okay, they don't look so much alike after all. But there's certain features that may have been there that made them look and maybe remind you of that particular person. But in reality, there's not much comparison. So when God is asking about who compares with them, he's actually asking, here, line us up together and see if we look a lot alike. See if we are similar. And he actually, in this passage, deals with a few things that are uh, typical of what we might want to compare to greatness or power. Uh, one of those was the, uh, the powerful nations. Uh, we are concerned about our nation. We're concerned about other nations. We're concerned about military might. We're concerned about uh, uh, negotiating and having position in regard to the, uh, the world of finances and trading and all those types of things because we, we value our positioning in regard to the nations. That wasn't too unlike back in the day when Israel and Judah were active and that uh, they were concerned about the other nations. In this particular case, they're concerned about the nations that are taking them over. But all along, they also depended upon nations to bail them out. Consider Solomon. What did he do? He married alliances with all these nations because he figured, well, if they're part of the family, uh, they're not going to be part of the problem. <laughs> we kind of know differently. But the, but the idea is that uh, the, the negotiations, the uh, political interactions, all that was concerning how can we uh, negotiate or manipulate other nations because there was a concern about them. And God says this, why are we concerned? He says, what does man try to compare me to? National powers? Why? They're like a drop in a bucket or like dust. No matter what kind of alliances that uh, Israel is wanting to gather together, they would be like a huge bucket, and in that bucket would be a drop. And if you multiplied that by 30, it would still be just 30 little drops, or like dust on a scale or balance. But the nations were nothing compared to God. He even calls them like grasshoppers. People are like grasshoppers. And then uh, in verse 22, and then in verse 23, he says, the princes and the rulers, they are nothing. These individuals that exalt themselves and uh, uh, try to show themselves as being powerful compared to the great God, nothing. As you consider that which gets into your life of maybe intimidating you, maybe being that thing which you think is going to bail you out or be your strength or be your alliance. Consider that there is no better option than making sure you're aligning up with God and that his greatness is what is directing your life, providing you the comfort, providing you the strength. He goes on to ask this, uh, what does man try to compare me with? Does he try to compare me with idols? Verses 19 and 20 has this little description about the idols where you take the gold and uh, create an idol. Or even if they don't even have that, they take some wood that might rot and try to form it into something and they say, this is my God. And God just mocks that and says, these things need to be propped up and held up and taken care of and moved around and all these type of things. These are not anything comparable to me. I wonder, though, even though we're not in an age where we would 
carve something out of gold or out of wood and put it on a mantle and worship it. But are there some things that we are worshiping? Some things that allow uh, our hearts to be distracted from God? Things that we're willing to follow in disobedience to our God, but we, we love it so much that we want it. Israel struggled with that badly. Fun fact is that once they came out of Babylon, they never once again turned back to idolatry. They had other issues, but never back to idolatry. But all up until that time, idolatry was a constant, constant problem. And it can be for us as well. Maybe not in little images, but in some things that we try to make in the image of God. Things that we want to, to make important in our life and are great to us. Bigger to us than even God might be. All these things are absurd in comparison. Recently, because of the fact that a lot of sports are shut down, they've been putting up the series on Michael Jordan and that last dance as the Bulls were going through and just uh, winning everything. There's an interesting quote that comes out of that era. There's a, a player. He's a power forward for the Bulls during that dynasty time. And his name is Stacy King. He's more well known for his uh, announcing, sports announcing and such. But uh, during their championship run, he stated this. And this is after a night that uh, uh, they, they had a victory. He said, I'll always remember this as the night that Michael Jordan and I combined for 70 points. That was back in March of 1990. The interesting thing there is Michael Jordan that night scored 69 and uh, Stacy King won. Uh, it, it's absurd to think that they should be in the same sentence together. And that's essentially what God is saying. It's absurd that you would want to compare me to the might of the other nations, to the idols that you might worship, to those things that are important to you that you might fear that you may want to reverence. God is saying it's absurd, just as absurd as it is for Stacy King to say, I remember that time when Michael Jordan and I combined for 70 points. God then goes on and I think changes the emphasis of the questions. There's not as many here that, uh, that he, he shares, but they are just as pointed. He asks, do you not know do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? God is turning the attention to not his greatness, but our lack of observation of his greatness. How can we not see it? How can we be so dull of hearing, so dull of understanding? Why don't we know these things? Why don't we remember these things? Why is it we forget how great God is in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our difficulties, even in the midst of the mundaneness of life? Why do we forget? And God is asking that question. He, why are you forgetting? And earlier on, he says this, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might. Verse 10. And then in verse 22, he says this, Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. And he goes on to talk about his intimate relationship with the stars and how that they are related to him and, and how that he interacts with them. 
and uh, am reminded of this truth that uh, God is letting us know that his creation is designed for us to be reminded of his greatness. It's so sad. So many people of great intelligence are distracted to think that studying the creation gives them reason not to believe in God. When God says this, he says in Psalm 19.1, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. The mere viewing of God's creation should scream to us that God exists. I can't fathom what it would be like if you were to totally immerse yourself in the study of God's creation and miss the point that God is the creator. But yet many do, and Romans talks about that in, uh, as Paul is, is explaining to those who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are without excuse. He says, he says this, Romans 1, 19 and 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Talking about those people who have rejected him. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And he says this very condemning statement. So they are without excuse. God has given his grace to communicate to the whole world through what we call general revelation to say that I exist. Why do you not know this? And so he's encouraging them to, to realize that God exists and he's great. But yet the people of Israel were missing out on that. So it brings us to our third question as we close our time together, as we think about our great God and as we close out our thoughts on Isaiah 40. I ask the question, what should you do in light of who God is and that nobody compares to him and that uh, we many times miss out on remembering who he is? What should we do? First of all, we should be observant. We should look at creation and recognize that God is great and God is the one who measures all of creation and he measures you as well and you ought to be concerned about that and you ought to welcome that measuring and welcome that relationship with him be observant to it don't be like the uh, Israelites as they ask the question uh, here in the uh, uh, Verse 27, it says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Be observant. Don't look at your world and your life and say, Why has God forsaken me? Why has God not treated me properly? Look and see God for who he is. Whether you're seeing him in, his, in the creation or as we talked last week, seeing him in the word of God, in the special revelation of his word to help us know how we should live, observe, and allow that to be have an impact in your life. I think the second thing that I would encourage us to do is be a sheep. Verse 11 says this, God will tend his flock like a shepherd. 
He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those are, that are with young. Quite frankly, we don't want to be a sheep. You ask any child uh, if they were to be an animal, what would they want to be? I want to be a tiger. I want to be a dragon. I want to be something that's powerful. I want to be something that accomplishes something. Some people will revere and fear. I want to be a sheep. Yet, yet that's how God sees us. And God wants us to act like his sheep, willing to uh, follow him, willing to allow him to take care of us, to take us through that valley of shadow of death, to take us to that place where we can lie down, where we are depending upon him. So I encourage you, just not only to observe God, but be willing to be his sheep. Part of that is willing to understand what the great shepherd has come here to do. The great shepherd has come to give us eternal life. And if you've not placed your faith in Jesus Christ to realize that God has all along desired for you to have a personal relationship with him, and so he has given his own son as the sacrificial lamb to pay the penalty of your sin so that you can have a right relationship with God. So you can have that which stands between you and God taken away. Become a sheep. Become a child of God. And in the third item, we touched on this last week as we talked about how the God's word is lasting and living. That it's designed to console us or to give us comfort so that we would be actively doing something. Here's what God says at the close of Isaiah chapter 40. He says, he does not faint, talking of God, or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. And then these words that we shared last week. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord, shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Isaiah closes out the chapter just reminding us of the fact that uh, we are designed to be energized by God. The world can wear us out. The fears that we have, the unknown. All the things that are so different, all the things that are so strange, even the quest to go back to normal brings anxiety as we don't know for sure how to do all things. We don't know what this decision will, will cause. And as a result, it'd be so easy to be worn out and exhausted just by thinking about how do we continue on as a church and continue on in our mission. But God says, wait on him. And he will renew strength. He will allow us to, in a sense, fly, run, and walk. As we consider this, there's no one like God. As a matter of fact, as we'll sing in just a moment, there is God and there's God alone. Father, we thank you for the time that you've given to us to reflect on your greatness. Oh, how we forget. How we get caught up in the issues that are pressing upon us. The things that are serious. Things that uh, 
are, are certainly things that merit our concern. But yet, we need to be waiting on you. We need to be observing really who you are, not just the circumstances around us. We must be willing to align ourselves up like a sheep following you. And we must be willing to set our own strength aside, to not be caught up with how weak we are because we couldn't do what we wanted to do. Let us see you glorified through us as you strengthen us. And I ask, Lord, that you would allow us to live for you, that you might be the one to receive the glory. We thank you for being great, and we thank you for showing that to us in such a clear way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.